news and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Final hour of the show. We got Did You Hear This uh, coming up here very quickly, um, and that happens at 1120 every day, so that's right around the corner. We talked a couple of times this morning because I think this is such a, a big topic for everyone, the possibility of a rail strike and what that could do to our economy. Um, one of my frequent guests is Kristen Benson. and I, I just think the world of Kristen. She is a retail analyst. She has made a huge name for herself internationally even when it comes to um, finance and when it comes especially to the retail world. And so she made a, a living for years, going back 20 years now, and her job was to advise investment firms about the retail world, which direction it was going and how to invest their money based on what she saw the industry doing. And she has been so – her and I have been friends for years. But what really when she would come on the show was during COVID when she was talking about how this was going to affect you as a consumer – and the retail industry and what companies would make it and which companies were weak and might not. And she was so spot on. And we talked about this yesterday on the show. And she said people don't realize. And she not, not one sector of the U.S. economy would go unaffected if we had a rail strike. Um, I want you to hear Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, because they are taking up legislation that would defeat a strike. And uh, this is what Nancy Pelosi had to say about the possibility. I don't like going against the ability of unions to strike, but weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. uh, Jobs will be lost. And this is where if you go back to the Reagan years, Ronald Reagan was criticized by the left because he he basically um, broke the union. And when and these were the unions of air traffic controllers for the same reason that the air traffic controllers would effectively stop air travel in the U.S., not just a commercial, but a, a private and also not just passengers, but also the um, transport of goods. And so it would have had international effects, not just national effects. And it would have been so devastating to our economy. He broke the union. And they, that's not going to happen here, by the way. Um, as a matter of fact, Nancy Pelosi, as you heard, she's a union supporter. The president of the United States calls himself the most, most pro-union president we've ever had. I believe that to be true. Not a criticism, just an observation. And I have no, – at its, at its core – I don't have a problem with unions as they are supposed to exist. I don't like what unions in some cases have become. But I've acknowledged before, uh, being coming from the trades, I've never been the member of a union. Never. Um, I've been a union extra in the theatrical world because I was a loader, which meant I was the non-union laborer that was used as a strong back and a weak mind to load and unload trucks for concerts. So I've worked in an atmosphere with union membership. But I've never been a union member, and I never had a reason for one. It's not a slam. I just I grew up in a right to work state of Florida. I was in the trades there. I was able to excel and make a really nice living myself there. Get training on my own. But I have to also have to acknowledge that when it comes to the trades, if you want a well rounded person in that trade, the world I came from as an electrician, you're not going to find a better trained employee than a union electrician. They have great training. There's no doubt about it. I just don't have any use for a union. I, I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just not a union guy. 
But what they've turned into in many cases is the concern is where they try to hold hostage, where they protect bad employees because they believe that's the job of the union. And when that happens, I think they do the wrong thing. But the issue here is whether or not they are being reasonable in the requests that they are making, compensation, sick days, things of that nature. The big complaint most of the unions, and especially this one here, the the Railroad Workers Union, said Joe Biden blew it. He had the opportunity to prove his labor-friendly pedigree to millions of workers by simply asking Congress for legislation to end the threat of a national strike on terms more favorable to the workers. Sadly, he could not bring himself to advocate for a lousy handful of sick days. The Democrats and Republicans are both pawns of big business and the corporations. That sounds like the usual easy go-to talking point to me because the president of the United States – And the Speaker of the House and Nancy Pelosi have both gone after large corporations, the oil companies and otherwise. Pay your fair share. They want oppressive taxes. They want obscene, what do they call it, the the profit tax. If you're getting too much of a profit, um, they want to tax you on that. Um, They're going after them and calling them profiteers. All of these things have happened. So they haven't just changed their mind. What's happening here is, I believe, is – The unions are pushing too far. They've gotten the vast majority of what they're asking for, but they they realize the implications of a strike that they could probably get just a little bit more. Maybe we could – and the federal government's going to step in and say, listen, we put a deal on the table. The president, the White House said we put a deal on the table. Almost all of the unions have agreed to it. There's a couple of holdouts, but the unions stand together. If one union strikes, the other unions will honor it. And you're holding out for something that is unfair. So what they say is, well, you're just part of the corporate. That's that's never I'm not defending Nancy Pelosi. I'm certainly not defending Joe Biden. What I'm saying is look at their record. Their record has never been, never been to side against labor in a conversation. In 1992, President Biden, when he was Senator Biden, was in favor of a rail strike. So this is um, this is about money. It always is and control. And at some point, someone has to be able to say enough is enough. When you look at what's going on with our economy, um, what this could do to the American economy, the innocent people that have nothing to do with this. Black Friday sales have been strong. We have seen spending be pretty high. People are still concerned about how we're going to pay off the debt. But it's interesting to see what's going on. NPR has a story here. Um, are greedy corporations to blame for inflation? Everyone agrees inflation is happening. What they don't agree on is who done it. The most recent numbers show prices up 7.7% over 2021. Um, And so they say the prime suspects, the main suspects differ across party lines. Many economists and politicians on the right say inflation is caused by government spending and various aid programs. Um, But now what they say is it's corporate greed. And I laugh at that. And I think let's talk about the oil companies. I just want to clear this up. I have no need nor a desire to defend oil companies. I have no interest in them unless, of course, my 401k is invested. But it's not like I'm making anything from the oil companies. I'm making an observation. And the observation. Observation is this. For four years during the Trump administration, fuel gasoline, not fuel because that encompasses a lot of other things, gasoline was under $3 a gallon for all four years. Go look it up. 
pre-COVID when the economy was booming and everybody was working and there was high demand um, because people want to say during COVID demand was so low. That's why prices were low. The prices were low. For all four years of the Trump administration, under three bucks a gallon. So let's talk, forget policy for a moment. Let's talk specifically about the oil barons, the oil companies. If the oil companies are such profiteers, were they more afraid of Donald Trump? Why would they sell you gasoline for under $3 a gallon for four years? And then immediately when the administration changes hands, they begin to jack their prices. Is it because they knew they could get away with it under Joe Biden because he's so friendly to the oil companies? I mean, these are questions you have to ask before you jump to the political conclusion because you don't like somebody. Ask yourself the questions. If the oil companies were selling you gas here in this country for under $3 a gallon for four straight years, why did they increase the prices when Biden became president? It's a valid question. Before you jump to conclusions, it's a valid question. Coming up in a moment, we have a segment called Did You Hear This? It's where we catch you up on the big headlines of the day, so please stick around for it. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, let's catch you up on all of the news of the day. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. Former Arizona Attorney General Terry Goddard told the Gatos and Chad Show why he and former Maricopa County Attorney Rick Romley sent Attorney General Mark Ronovich a letter to his office regarding the election in Cochise County. We wanted to make it very clear that there are more than just uh, civil consequences. In other words, there are criminal violations when an elected official who's sworn to, su- to support the laws of the Constitution of the state of Arizona decides to ignore those laws. Would criminal consequences dissuade people from election conspiracies or only fuel them more? Yeah, I think I think it only fuels them more. I think what ends up happening is um, they, they become martyrs. If you look what happened with the, uh, the people that are still big supporters of the former president and Donald Trump, Trump is that the more of these prosecutions, the more of legal challenges, the more of legal threats, they become a martyr to the people that support them when they say we're going to stand up no matter what. So I think that uh, that's going a little bit far in that direction. I agree they should certify the election, but I think what you're doing to the people that are believers in the movement is you're creating martyrs, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. President Biden is making his first presidential visit to the Valley. He will be here this coming Tuesday, December 6th, visiting the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Plant under construction in North Phoenix. Who really gets the credit in bringing manufacturing plants to Phoenix? I think for Biden. I think that uh, I think in this case, I think President Biden deserves some of the credit out of Washington, D.C. because of what they've passed when the CHIPS Act and things of that nature. I think that that's got to be recognized. But the complete diversification of our economy goes to the credit of Governor Doug Ducey. I think that Governor Ducey has done the very hard work along with the legislatures along the way over the last eight years of transforming the economy of Arizona into something we all can be proud of, but something we can rely on and ensure that our children and our grandchildren not only have jobs, but have careers. And I think a lot of that credit, the vast majority of that credit, does go to our governor. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to catch you up on the headlines. 
A youngish era of politicians will most likely be some of the new leaders in Congress. Pete Aguilar of California, 43, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, 52, and Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, 59, will be elected to leadership positions within the Democratic Party. They're super young, you know, 20 years younger than the current leadership, but also we're set to see the first black leader of any Democratic caucus of any age with Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Do you think this new wave of younger leadership in both parties is due to the amount of young people coming of voting age? Um, I don't know if it's the reason, but I think it's necessary. And just to show you why it's necessary, listen to what they just said. You're talking about people in their 40s and 50s being called the young new leaders. That's a problem. I've said this many, many times before. Every organization that I know of that is really good, whether it's a business or whatever it is, they are training up the next generation of leaders. They make sure the board of directors are mentoring younger people than them so that when they leave, these people are equipped to lead. That's what a healthy organization does. In politics, we don't do that. People hang on into their 70s and their 80s, and they're not relinquishing the control and the power to younger people. So the indictment is that if you're hearing the new leadership, the new young leadership is in their 50s, I'm 55. I haven't been called young in 20-something years. We need to get even younger is what I think. An employee who was a victim in the Walmart shooting in Virginia is suing. In the $50 million lawsuit, employee Danya Prelo accuses Walmart of negligence, claiming the company knew the alleged shooter had known propensities for violence, threats, and strange behavior, but continued to employ him. Does a lawsuit like this open up the door for other victims to sue employers in school districts for not taking action against someone who could be a potential shooter? I, I, it's such a hard question because you have a major corporation like Walmart. How do you possibly know what a real threat is versus somebody that's just a jerk in some cases? And then it takes something like this to bring it out. There's a lot of people that are involved in this person's life that if he was this dangerous and it was known, there's an indictment on them and they should be held accountable if you're going to go down this road. I don't know how you this lawsuit works out. The problem we have is that we don't have people, whether it's in a school setting or in a, in a professional setting, it's that threat assessment. As my friend uh, Stephen Hooper has said, on this show that it's about somebody owning the threat, that if there are threats that an employee or a student can go to that person and say, so-and-so is saying this, and you're building a dossier, so to speak, on behavior so that you can intervene. That has to happen across the board, but I don't know, 50 million bucks is a lot of money. That's Did You Hear This? Great job, Lydia. Terrific job, and, and we wish you well. I know it's your last day here with us, and so uh, I wish you well. You've done a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. So this is, again, we talk about younger leadership. This is someone that's at Cronkite School right now, and these are the leaders of tomorrow. These are the people that will be in this, in the behind these microphones someday or in front of a camera or, or whatever it is. Those are the leaders. This is about this is the organization. When I say a healthy organization, we have such a great group of young people that come in. They start out as interns. They become employees sometimes, and they go on to do great things. And uh, that's why I think we work for a healthy organization 
And I hope other groups in politics follow that lead. There are young, young Republicans and young Democrats. But from my political perspective, the YRs and the young Republicans, the college Republicans, that they should be given an opportunity to be mentored by leadership. You should be taking these young people and introducing them. How many people that you probably don't know about, they came through the ranks that are now in leadership or have been. We should be fostering those relationships and that interest right now. Why would any young person be interested in a political career if they know they're never getting into a position of authority until they're in their 40s or 50s? That's part of the problem, and I think I think we should get over it. Coming up in a moment, back to the elections, Cochise County and the lawyer they hired. Next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, a couple of things I want to clear up as we move forward with this election. Cochise County, the lone holdout as far as certification of the election. Um, and so we now we still have the recount coming of the Chris Mays, Abe Hamaday race for attorney general. Chris Mays, the Democrat, is leading in that race by just over 500 votes, less than 600 votes for sure. And uh, that recount will tell us a story in that race. But with what's happening in Cochise County, there are a couple of things. Listen, if you genuinely believe that there is an honest belief that the elections were stolen, and then you should stand your ground and fight and say, we want things done the right way. Again, I admire protests. I admire people that stand their ground, um, even if I don't agree. I've, for years, I've talked about this, is that when you are willing to put it all on the line and say, this is something I believe in, and this is a hill, for her, lack of a better term, a hill I'm willing to die on, good for you. Um, but it's how you do it, what the reasons you're doing it, and then what good it's going to do down the road. So there are some that truly believe the election was stolen in 2020 and 2016, by the way, and in 2022 now. And if they believe that wholeheartedly, they also believe we're never going to have fair elections. They will continue to rig elections. And so the right people will never win. So they are going to hold out and make sure they do everything they can to fix the system so that it's no longer rigged. That's the belief by some. But I don't believe that it's the belief of the vast majority of people. On both sides of the aisle, I think it transcends political parties. And at some point, you have to look at what you can do. Um, I don't cast insults. I don't I, I just not my style. I'm not someone that's going to insult somebody that I disagree with, even if I think what you're I'll say why I think what you're doing is wrong. I'll explain what my position is, but I'm not going to assault your character. I'm not going to insult your intelligence. What I'm going to do is point out what I think needs to be done. What should the election deniers? What should the people on the losing end of elections be doing right now in the Republican Party? I would look at 2020. I would look at 2022, especially 22, because you had the tailwind in 2022. What happened? So if you want to go down the road and continue with stolen elections, then you have to do that. You know, how many votes were stolen? How did they push it over the top? And, you know, I'm asking good questions that deserve good answers because you're asking questions of the elections. Well, why? Why did this happen? What about this? And that's not proof of anything. You realize that when someone sends you a YouTube video that asks a bunch of questions of, well, why did this happen? Why did this person with this cell phone show up at 14 different places where ballot drop boxes were? The answer is I. I don't know, but it doesn't prove anything. If you want to prove something, you have to prove something. But I've got some questions of my own. Why is it if the election was stolen that the number one vote getter 
in the entire statewide election was a Republican in Kimberly Yee. If this was stolen, how did she get more votes than anyone else? Did they really were they that technically advanced that they could rig every single vote in every single election to make me ask questions like this? Why is it that the top two Republicans in performance in statewide races were not Trump endorsed? And we're not vocally election deniers. I don't know where they stand on 2020. I don't know if either one, whether it's Tom Horn or Kimberly Yee, I have no idea if either one of them believe the 2020 election was stolen. Because what they talked about was the job. It wasn't these other things. That's a valid question. I'm not asking you to disbelieve what you believe about the election, but you have to ask those questions. If the Republicans were cheated in Arizona, how did we gain two House seats? How did that happen? How did we hang on to the legislature? We had a one-seat majority in the House and the Senate going in, and we retained a one-seat majority in the House and the Senate. So was this, then you have to believe that this was a concerted effort to specifically steal the election from specific people, namely Carrie Lake and Blake Masters. You have to believe that everybody else was fair game, that everybody else were going to be the sacrificial lamb, that we would that they would the cheaters would uh, fake wins for others to take away the belief that it was cheating against the other two. And I don't believe that happened. I don't believe that happened. There were big mistakes that happened in Maricopa County, there's no doubt. But did it change the results of the election? They say no. They say the number of people checked in versus the number of people who voted shows that there were not people that were disenfranchised. Does that mean people didn't go because they heard about the long lines? I don't know the answer to that. Or they showed up and saw the long lines, so they left. I don't know the answer to that either. But the reason why I'm going so in-depth with this is because there are times, and I'm guilty of this like anybody else, there are some things that are so important to us, that mean so much to us, that we are so invested in, that when people ask, we forget to ask logical questions. The questions I just asked about this election are legitimate questions. If the Republicans were cheated out of this election, why is the number one vote getter over all the other statewide candidates, more than Mark Kelly, more than Katie Hobbs, more than any of the other Democrats and Republicans? How did Kimberly Yee get the most votes? And it's a valid question that before we all go down the road of a stolen election and intentionality and all these other things, you have to ask those questions. But what I would also be doing and I would be looking at a record number, um, a record number of 400,000 Latino voters represented about 15 and a half percent of the nearly 2.6 million total votes cast in Arizona's midterm election, up from 15 percent in 2018, according to pro- uh, projections by DJ Quinlan, a partner in Radar Strategies, who was a former executive director of the Arizona Democratic Party. I would look at that. I would be looking at what people, why people went to the polls. What was it that they were voting for or were they voting against something? Just like if I were, listen, if I were a Democrat and I saw the thin margins of victory. So here's the other side of that coin because I think there's two, again, my favorite saying when it comes to this, it's a pretty thin slice of ham that doesn't have two sides. 
So for the Democrats, why aren't you asking yourself if the Republican election denier crazy people that they've turned into, if the if the Republicans are just crazy? That's the, that's the narrative, right? You know, they, they when it came to COVID-19, you were just a crazy person with ivermectin and all that other stuff. And the Republican Party has gone out of its mind and the right wing has taken over control. If all of that's true, how did Tom Horn become the superintendent of public schools? How did Tom Horn beat an incumbent Democrat for the superintendent's job? How did Kimberly Yee become the number one vote getter? See, these questions should be asked on both sides of the aisle. If Carrie Lake was as crazy as you claim that she is and everybody knows it and everybody believes it, how did she only lose by 17,000 votes to Katie Hobbs? You, you know, if you don't ask those questions, you're going to continue to lose a lot of elections, too. If everybody believes that the Republican Party is responsible for election denial and wasting all this money when it comes to the audit and everything else that happened in Arizona and people are sick of it and it's time to move on, how do they retain control of the legislature, especially the Senate when it was the Republican leadership in the Senate that called for and paid for the audit? It goes two ways. Why aren't you looking at the demographic shifts? When you look at a win or a loss, you have to ask brutally honest questions. How did we get where we are and how do we do better next time? If we are going to continue as a state, I don't care which political party it is, if we are going to continue to look backwards, we are going to lose in the next election. Plain and simple. And if the parties don't do that, you're doing a disservice to voters. And one last thing I'll say on this before I move on. Both political parties, the major political parties, I'm not being disrespectful to libertarians or the Green Party, but the major parties, Republicans and Democrats in Arizona, you really need to take a look at how fast the number of independent registered independent voters there are in Arizona, how fast they're growing. In Maricopa County, it is now the number one demographic in Maricopa County, independent. Not in their thinking. Not in their ideology, but in who they register with because they don't want to be associated with either one of you, either party. And if you don't take a long, hard look at that as an indictment of the way you've been doing business and who you've been doing business with, who you've been talking to and who you've been catering to, you're going to lose. And on the bright side of that, the first one of those two major parties that realizes that and begins to reach out in a real way to independent voters is going to win and is going to win big. And we'll see. We'll see if people catch on. We got one more short segment before we close it out. We're going to go back to another one of the big stories of the morning in just a couple of seconds. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. By a vote of 290 to 137, the House of Representatives have voted to avert a rail strike. It now goes to the Senate, so we're not out of the woods yet, but the House of Representatives moved urgently to head off a looming nationwide rail strike. So this was a deal that was brokered by the White House, and ultimately it was voted down by a third of the 12 unions that represent more than 100,000 employees in the large freight rail carriers. So four of the 12 voted it down. The unions have threatened to strike if an agreement can't be reached by the deadline of December 9th, which is a Friday. 
So lawmakers from both parties expressed reservations about overriding the negotiations, and the intervention was particularly difficult for Democratic lawmakers. I'm reading from a story. Obviously, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi responded to the concerns by adding a second vote Wednesday that would add seven days of sick paid leave per year for rail workers covered under the agreement. However, it will take effect only if the Senate goes along and passes both measures. Um, Intervening, the federal government intervening in labor issues is not something I'm in favor of really either. I just think it's a big move. But when you look at what's happened in the past, the one I remember is is Reagan intervening with the with the union that represented air traffic controllers. And uh, it, it effectively broke the union. So there's a couple of things at play here for um, that I believe are at play for the uh, labor unions. And you have to concern yourself with the fact that the House of Representatives will be taken over by Republicans in January. So you may go in in December, you may go on strike, but in January, it'll be a different set of leadership that might actually vote for a deal or something else that's not as good. And so you're going to want to make sure you take what you can. The big issue for these four unions that were holdouts, that issue had to do with sick days, paid sick days. Now, I work for a, a big company. I work for a company that offers – I have health insurance and, and I have uh, I have sick days, which I don't use. I've never – negotiated sick day. I've never even thought about negotiating sick days. I know some people negotiate vacation time. I'd like to have a little more vacation time, but I've never negotiated more sick days. So I don't understand why this is an issue, but for whatever reason, that's an issue. Um, but for the American people, the the depth of, of the issues we would have economically, the cost of billions of dollars a day to the uh, GDP in America if the rail were to stop. It would be passengers as well as it would be for goods being transported. There is so much in every single industry that would be affected by this that it would be devastating to an already fragile economy. So I think that's part of the reason why the Biden administration and, and the Speaker of the House, the Democrats in general – intervening. It's because they understand that we're, we are on the precipice here. We have a weak economy. Now, I know that jobs are good. Thank God for that. And I hope that it turns around. I hope we avoid a recession. I hope all that happens. But we'll see. We shall see how this all plays out. And if we avoid this rail strike, that's going to be a huge step in the right direction. That is for sure. And uh, hopefully that's going to happen. I just want to see us all thrive. You can hear the music. We're just about out of time. If you're a social media user, hit me up at Broomhead KTAR on Twitter. That's where you can find me, my personal account. If you want to follow the show and learn about guests and what's coming up, at Broomhead Show is where you can find that on Twitter. And if you are an Instagram user, you can find me at Mike Broomhead. All one word. No dots, no dashes. I'd love to stay in touch between shows. It's the best way to reach out and stay in touch. I'll be back tomorrow morning, beginning just after 8 o'clock. We get jumping here after the expansion with another edition of the Mike Broomhead Show. So have a great rest of your day. I'll be back tomorrow morning around 8 a.m. Thanks for hanging in. God bless.